Tonight I'm going to talk about joy. This is continuing the theme of Advent, the Advent topics I've been following the past few weeks. And to begin, I'm going to share a story from the Christian tradition, a story about St. Francis who lived in the 12th century, St. Francis of Assisi. The story goes that one night St. Francis and Brother Leo were walking. They had been walking all day. They were trying to get to a monastery. At this point, it was night. It was raining. They were tired. They were cold. They were hungry. And they were just trudging on, trying to get to their, their destination. And after several hours of walking in silence, out of the blue, Francis says to Leo, Brother Leo, do you know what perfect joy would be? And, and Leo was just so humble, he just, he just waited for Francis to teach him. And Francis said, if we get to that monastery and they don't recognize us and they beat us and turn us away hungry in the cold and we can walk away from there still praising God, that is perfect joy. So that's a very challenging story, uh, and an exceptionally high saintly kind of ideal of what joy is. But it brings out that joy is something that it comes from within. It is not, it's not hooked to external circumstances. Um, Christianity would say joy is a virtue. It's something we cultivate, something we're responsible for. Buddhism would say that joy is part of our inborn nature and that the more I get beyond ego attachments and whatever personal trips I have, the more this joy is going to become apparent. And so it's a kind of, you might say, almost inner resilience, uh, uh, a, a rugged positivity that persists regardless of the changing ups and downs of the external world. So that's a high ideal. How do we cultivate joy? How do we get there? You know. And the way I'm going to frame this, I'm going to talk about what are what I've been called the eight pillars of joy. This these eight pillars of joy came out of a conversation between the Dalai Lama and the late Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. And in their, their older age, these two gentlemen got to know each other, and they got to be very good friends. And they, there was actually a book that came out describing this, this conversation where they, they talked about the pillars of joy. And one of the things I just found so endearing about this book is how much these two gentlemen loved each other. Like how much they were just tease each other, you know, they'd start every day giving each other the business and teasing each other, and then they'd get down to talking about, you know, incredibly wise, deep topics. So the eight pillars of joy are, I'll, I'll list them first. Perspective, humility, 
humor, acceptance, forgiveness, gratitude, generosity, and compassion. So the first one, perspective, which is really about our ability to change perspective. How agile can we be in shifting our perspective? Um, And I think in many ways we tend to have more self-centered perspectives as a default. We tend to have either you know, self-praising, self-aggrandizing perspectives that, that portray us in a particularly good light. Um, especially if we're triggered, you know, perspectives about, you know, I'm the victim and, you know, the world's been unfair to me, you know. Part of the rigidity of holding a perspective comes from the need to be right. And I, something that I heard years ago, which I think is very wise, one of the deepest questions in life is, would you rather be right or happy? You know, and it's a puzzling question at first, but really that the driving need to be right, that comes out of our pain. That doesn't come out of a good place in us. Whereas the desire to be happy, that's really aligned, at Buddhism would say, it's aligned with our deepest nature. You know? So can we at least be a little less, have a little less a tight a grip on, you know, knowing that we're right, you know, even in that moment when we're triggered by something that somebody else has done, you know? Shift in perspective often means shifting to a larger perspective, one that is curious, one that is taking in other people's points of view, one that is willing to hear somebody else's view on something, you know. Being open to feedback, this kind of thing. You know, so it's a real good question for all of us, you know, how how fixed are we in the perspective that we adopt on any given situation and how willing are we to maybe let go of that and let in some more information, you know. A tremendous amount of joy comes just from especially getting ourselves out of the perspectives where we're a victim. I think people sometimes cling to the rightness of being a victim and they wind up just holding on to their own pain longer, you know. Um... there's a certain amount of consolation that comes from having a very wide perspective. Now, in some sense, relatedly, the next one, humility. And I, as I often like to say, humility, I think there are some distortions in this society about humility. Humility doesn't mean that I'm putting myself below everyone else, you know, because... Whether I need to be above everyone else or below everyone else, either way, I'm making myself special. I'm making myself different from everyone else. And humility moves against that. Humility, in, with humility, I'm on the ground. I'm, on the, I'm eye to eye with everyone else. I'm not better than anyone else and nobody else is better than me. You know, this kind of thing. I can approach everyone as equals. And humility really allows us 
it really sets us up for healthy connection, you know, because I'm approaching everyone as a possible equal, you know. And so it's a great question, you know, where, where in life are we genuinely humble and where, where do we have kind of an arrogant, you know, maybe we don't even broadcast it, but have an arrogant perspective about, you know, well, I really know that I'm right about this, you know, this kind of thing. The third is humor. And all presence, I mean, there are, of course, some people in life who have a gift of humor and that they're, they're skilled at making other people laugh. And that is a wonderful gift. Um, the, the pillar of, of joy, humor, is not really so much about that. The peop- I mean, it's wonderful that people have that gift. But it's really about the humor that we all have access to, just being able to laugh at ourselves, laugh at the the absurdity of everyday life, you know, the absurd things in everyday life. Um, just going through life with a kind of sense of playfulness, you know, willing to see the joy, willing, willing to be surprised by joy. Um, and th- one of the ways I think I would say it is laughter is a very good thing. Laughter is a very healthy thing. Like, if we go a couple days without laughing, there's a problem with that, you know? Like, it's really important, like, you know, even if your external circumstances are things that you find hard to laugh about, you know, can you find that comic on YouTube? Or, you know, can you create some sort of, you know, condition for yourself so you actually are genuinely laughing? Because laughter is an enormous reset. The fourth is acceptance. Acceptance, accepting what is in life. And this can be very easy or it can be very hard, you know. There are some things that are very easy to accept. There are some things that are incredibly difficult to accept, you know. Insofar as I'm resisting what is true in the present moment, I'm spending an extraordinary amount of of energy fighting against reality, you know? And reality is bigger than me, you know? Reality wins in that struggle. You know, so what would it mean to really relax into a deep acceptance of not only everything that you like, but everything that kind of makes you uncomfortable, everything that is not quite the way you want. You know, in acceptance, it's not resignation, it's not giving up, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to take whatever steps I can take to make my situation better, to make my world better, you know. But at any one moment, there's always going to be more than I can do. You know. What, does, what would it mean just to relax into the acceptance of that? That kind of deep letting go. The fifth pillar is forgiveness. And forgiveness, how can I say? 
In order to forgive, we have to feel aggrieved. We have to feel like someone has done us wrong. And the paradox of forgiveness is the part of me that is wounded isn't really the part of me that can forgive. Like the part of me that's wounded, and especially, you know, poor me, and why did, you know, why did that happen to me, and that was not fair. Like that kind of, that place in me, you know, it's important to give that place a voice and feel it fully and acknowledge it and all that. But at a certain point, I need to step into a more noble place, a place where I have perspective on myself and the other person, a place where I value connection more than my own sob story, you know. Forgiveness is a, especially in a in an ongoing relationship, um, forgiveness is just a, a wonderful reaffirmation of the power of love, of the power of connection. You know, it's almost saying, I'm going to, in some sense, sacrifice, or I'm going to give, give something of my pride up in order to further this relationship, you know. And so there's something incredibly healing, incredibly beautiful about forgiveness. I'll just say parenthetically that um, in my own mind, I think one of the most beautiful, dramatic portrayals of forgiveness I've ever seen is the conclusion of Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro, which is just a, an astonishing story of forgiveness. And and Mozart really undoes himself in the final scene. The, the music is like, it's, it's Mozart, some of Mozart's best in that scene. Anyway, for those who like opera. The next is gratitude. And about three weeks ago, the, the Monday before Thanksgiving, I talked about gratitude, but gratitude of course, increases our joy. Gratitude is all about seeing the miracles around us, appreciating everything that's wonderful around us, you know? If I walk around in a world full of miracles, I'm, I'm going to have more joy, you know? So gratitude is, is very powerful, and it's a very powerful practice. It really is... I think it's it's deeply underestimated how powerful gratitude is. The seventh pillar is generosity. And it's just an acknowledgement that it feels good to be generous. It feels good to give. And I'll say that you know, of course, we live in a very capitalist-driven society, and there's this way that that Christmas has become like this supreme capitalist holiday, and it's all about, you know, so we think of giving, we think of, the, you know, an actual physical gift that we would give to somebody. And, and you know, and that could be wonderful in a certain context also, but the most important forms of giving have nothing to do with money. The most important forms of giving are giving attention, giving caring, you know, giving, making meaningful eye contact with somebody, um, giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, giving somebody the chance to tell their own story, you know, all these kinds of things, all these sorts of 
giving that include people and validate people and invite people into connection, you know? Though that's where the real giving is in life. You know, and and the moments that we truly give and we see how somebody responds, there's something so rewarding about that, you know, and it 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 is such a powerful source of joy. And the final, the finer pillar is compassion. And the paradox of compassion is, I can't have deep compassion for anyone else unless I have deep compassion for myself. The work of compassion is necessarily about myself as well as about everyone else around me, you know? And again, I think the the culture we live in, the, the, there's this old Puritan narrative that, you know, if I'm giving to everyone else, but I'm miserable myself, I'm, that, that's what a good person is, you know, neglecting myself for the sake of everyone else. And that's, it's just kind of a psychological lie. Because if I'm miserable myself, that's going to impact the way I treat other people, you know. Other people, one way or another, are going to taste my misery, you know. Compassion is just a complete acceptance of ourselves, a complete acceptance of others exactly as we are, you know? And we all have flaws. We all make mistakes. We all, you know, we all have limitations. We all have, we do things that we shouldn't do and we don't do the things we should do. And, you know, on and on and on. We're all imperfect. And compassion is about accepting ourselves, all our messiness, exactly as it is. And therefore being able to accept other people in their messiness, exactly as it is, you know. And of course, other people's messiness usually looks different from our messiness. So that gives us, you know, I can judge their messiness. It looks different from mine, you know, this kind of thing. Um, compassion is just about accepting people however they are. And I often say, if you think of a person, say you run into a person in life who is, who's insensitive, who's gruff, who's belittling, who's, you know, aggressive, you know, the, you know, uh, and you can, you know, any concoction of unpleasant qualities, I really think that if we could just see a film of that person from birth onward and feel deeply everything that happened to them, our hearts would just break with compassion for them, you know? So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. So I just dropped the quote sheet in chat. At the top, I I just list so that you have them, the eight pillars of joy. And if you, you, you can find that book, the book of joy, which is a conversation between the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu. Really, I enjoyed it quite a bit. 
from the Kudget Gyalpo, which is a, a Tibetan Buddhist writing. The desire for happiness is the disease of attachment. One can only be happy when one is free of desires. Heraclitus said, We are most nearly ourselves when we achieve the seriousness of the child at play. The Neoplatonist Philo said, The face of the wise man is not somber or austere, contracted by anxiety or sorrow, but precisely the opposite, radiant and serene, filled with a vast delight, which often makes him the most playful of men. The poet Omar Khayyam said, Be happy for this moment. This moment is your life. Rumi said, All disappointment springs from your hunting for satisfaction. If you could only stop, all imaginable joys would be rolled like pearls to your feet. Be passionate for the friend's tyranny, not his tenderness, so the arrogant beauty in you can become a lover that weeps. And friend here is just his way of talking about God. And I love this, you know, how can I say, there's, there's two sort of complementary ways of relating to the sacred. One is receiving the compassion of the sacred, the compassion of God, you know, which accepts us exactly as we are, and also real recognizing the need for discipline and my need to constantly working myself and improving myself. And it's important to balance those two, you know. But Rumi says, be passionate for the discipline side. Be passionate for the, everything that God is asking you to be. And I love that image of the arrogant beauty. You know, I think all of us have an arrogant beauty in us that, that makes an appearance from time to time. Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. Abraham Lincoln said quite practically, most of us are about as happy as we make our minds up to be. Emily Dickinson said, find ecstasy in life. The mere sense of living is joy enough. Shaw said quite astutely, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. Something very powerful in that. Andre Gide said, Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. From Richard Wilhelm in his, his wonderful commentary on the I Ching, Even happy turns of fortune often come in a form that at first feels strange. You know, and it's always a great question. What is it that, that seems a little bit strange in my life now that might be, in fact, something very fortunate, you know? The Christian mystic Taylor Deschardins said, Joy is the most ineffable sign of the presence of God. Archibald Rutledge said, 
One of the sanest, surest, and most generous joys in life comes from being happy over the good fortune of others. Deitch Lawrence said, This is my creed. For man, the vast marvel is to be alive. For man, as flower and beast and bird, the supreme triumph is to be most vividly, most perfectly alive. Whatever the unborn and dead may know, they cannot know the beauty, the marvel of being alive in the flesh. The dead may look after the afterward, but the magnificent here and now of life in the flesh is ours alone and ours only for a time. We ought to dance with rapture that we should be alive and in the flesh and part of the living incarnate cosmos. One of my favorite quotes, Wei Wu Wei said, Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself and there isn't one. Joseph Campbell said, We're so engaged in doing things to achieve a purpose of outer value that we forget the inner value, the rapture that is associated with being alive, is what it's all about. Psychologist Abraham Maslow said, If you plan on being anything less than you are fully capable of being, you will probably be unhappy all the days of your life. That's quite a challenge. Sachananda Saraswati said, A happy or unhappy life is your own creation. No one else is responsible. If you remember this, you won't find fault with anyone else. You are your own best friend as well as your own worst enemy. Arthur, William Arthur Ward said, The person who risks nothing does nothing, has nothing, and is nothing. He may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he cannot learn, feel, change, grow, live, or love. Chained by his certitudes or his addictions, he is a slave. He has forfeited his greatest trait, and that is his individual freedom. Only the person who risks is free. A couple from Carlos Castaneda. The aim is to balance the terror of being alive with the wonder of being alive. He also said, we make ourselves, either we make ourselves happy or miserable, the amount of work is the same. And that's really, that's really kind of funny to think about, like the moment that I'm sad, you know, I could, I could be doing just as much work to be happy right now, you know. Brother David Stendhal Ross, who is, who's, in many ways, a bodhisattva about gratitude, said, In our daily life, we must see that it is not happiness that makes us grateful, but that gratefulness makes us happy. The poet Gary Snyder said, Practically speaking, a life that is vowed to simplicity, appropriate boldness, good humor, gratitude, unstinting work and play, and lots of walking, brings us close to the actual existing world and its wholeness. The Dalai Lama said quite simply, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Jack Cornfield said, the aim of spiritual life is to awaken a joyful freedom, 
a benevolent and compassionate heart in spite of everything. Deepak Chopra said, according to the Vedanta, there are only two symptoms of enlightenment, just two indications that a transformation is taking place within you toward a higher consciousness. The first symptom is that you stop worrying. Things don't bother you anymore. You become lighthearted and full of joy. The second symptom is that you encounter more and more meaningful coincidences in your life, more and more synchronicities, and this accelerates to the point where you actually experience the miraculous. Mark Nepo said, There's a great choice that awaits us every day, whether we go around carving holes in others because we have been so painfully carved in ourselves, or we let spirit play its song through our tender experience, enabling us to listen as well to the miraculous music coming through others. Tara Brock said, when Munindraji, a Vipassana meditation teacher, was asked why he practiced, his response was, so I will see the tiny purple flowers by the side of the road as I walk to town every day. With an undefended heart, we can fall in love with life over and over again. We can become children of wonder, grateful to be walking on the earth, grateful to belong with one another and to all of creation. We find our true refuge in every moment, in every breath. We are happy for no reason. Karen Meisen Miller said, you don't have to wait for happiness because there's no time to be happy but now. You don't have to go somewhere else because there's no place but here to find it. You don't have to do something else because there's nothing more to it. You don't have to get something else because everything you have is already enough. You just have to be happy. Mark Coleman said, Nature teaches us simplicity and contentment because in its presence we realize we need very little to be happy. Dugjan Punlop said, Your mind is brilliantly clear, open, spacious, and full of excellent qualities, unconditional love, compassion, and wisdom that sees things as they truly are. In other words, your awakened mind is always a good mind. It's never dull or confused. It's never distressed by doubts, fears, and emotions that, that so often torture us. Instead, your true mind is a mind of joy, free from all suffering. That is who you really are. That is the nature, the true nature of your mind and the mind of everyone. But your mind doesn't just sit there being perfect, doing nothing. It's at play all the time, creating your world. Yangi Minger said, when you see your own desire to be happy, you can't afford, you can't avoid seeing that same desire in others. Jeff Foster said, We eventually realize that our partners, jobs, religions, achievement, possessions won't make us happy. Not permanently, anyway. This is disillusionment. It manifests as anxiety, depression, midlife crisis, and it can be a wonderful thing. For contained within its sacred core is an invitation to go beyond all these comforts and pleasures that never really delivered what they promised, and to rediscover that which, cha- that which never changes, our true nature. When you realize that, no th- that nothing, no thing, 
ever has the power to make you permanently happy, you receive a deeper invitation. Nothing can make you happy, and that is the reason for joy. Etta Sawyer said, Enjoy today. It is one of the good old days you will miss in the future. And Rafsawan al-Musafar said, If your presence is a reason for others to be happy, then you will feel true joy.